You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number one, a stranger. There is a wooden corner shelf in the alcove just behind the telly. A pointless impulse buy from B&Q, neither big enough to hold a houseplant, nor small enough to go unnoticed. On it sits a pot lid that once belonged to my great-grandfather Avram. There was a time when if you bought any face cream, hair preparation, toothpaste or fish paste, in fact anything of a creamy or pasty consistency, it very likely came in a squat china pot. The lid usually featured the name of the maker and product, as it would on any modern packaging. In time, these would be enhanced by ever more decorative reproductions of paintings, some famous, some less so, and by the middle of the last century, pot lids were collector's items. Some connoisseurs refer to them as Prattware, after Pratt & Co., the Stoke factory mainly responsible for manufacturing them. But most collectors call them pot lids, even if they come with the base. By the mid-1960s, there were clubs, societies and magazines for devotees to swap duplicates and maybe find the holy grail for all collectors a pot lid bearing a reproduction of Washington crossing the Delaware. There were even a few celebrity collectors, among them Leslie Crowther and the wrestler Mick McManus. That the latter's infamous feud with Jackie Pallow was over the disputed ownership of a rare 1871 Burns Cottage pot lid is, of course, pure conjecture. The example on the corner shelf isn't a grail, holy or otherwise. It depicts a crudely drawn cartoon of two shabby men playing poker, one of them clearly holding an extra ace under the table in anticipation of cheating his opponent. Underneath is the caption, I was a stranger and you took me in, a pun on Matthew chapter 25, verse 35. My parents had a sideline in the antiques business and an abiding love of practically anything old but they never particularly liked this pot lid, despite its place among the personal effects of my father's beloved grandpa, Avram. When I was about eight, it ended up in a box destined for the Oxfam shop, until I rescued it at the last minute, because I liked the picture of the two poker players. It held World Cup coins, picture cards, and other boyish stuff, kept for no particular reason. Through my late teens and twenties, it became a useful repository for the precious eighth of lead or gram of sulphate which lubricated my social life. Later on, it sat on my desk holding postage stamps, torn off phone numbers and business cards. Today, it contains my daily blood pressure tablets. My great-grandparents, Avrom and Shandl, grew up and got married in the black seaport of Edessa, a city then noted for its large and vibrant Jewish ghetto. Avrom completed a long military service, as required of all Jewish men living in Tsarist Russia, and then made a precarious living as a journeyman cigarette maker. Tsar Nicholas was then the absolute ruler of Russia, and he presided over a brutally repressive government, which reserved a lot of that brutality for the Jewish population. Historians have been relatively kind to him, partly because the Germans and Russian rulers who came after were often worse, 
and partly because of the terrible end suffered by the entire Russian royal family. However, for Jews at the sharp end of his rule, their main concern was how to get as far away as possible from Tsar Nicholas. Salvation for Avram and Shandel came in the form of a boat. In 1898, word went out that a ship docked in Odessa was bound for Scotland where they were desperate to employ skilled cigarette makers at the WD and HO Wills factory in Glasgow and at a weekly wage beyond Avron's wildest dreams. Waving goodbye to their families forever, they made the long journey to Glasgow and a job making gold flake and woodbines, only for Avron to be sacked a few weeks later. It transpired that the factory was on the receiving end of a long-running dispute, and someone had the bright idea of bringing in cheap foreign labour to keep production going. But the unions and management eventually got round the table to settle the strike, and now Avron, in a strange country where he didn't speak a word of English, and with a young wife to support, was jobless. Somehow they found other work, moved south to a cold-water flat in London's East End, and raised five children. He was naturalised as a UK citizen in 1920, and was delighted when Russia and Britain became allies in 1941. Old and practically blind, he spent the war eagerly tuning in from one radio station to the next, only complaining when the newsreader mispronounced a Russian place name. My father used to tell me of the loud political arguments that sometimes erupted during family get-togethers. In common with many Jews of my grandparents' generation, Avram's children and their partners were educated and mostly on the left, the nascent metropolitan elite we hear so much about today. But my great-grandpa saw the world in less nuanced terms. He genuinely couldn't understand why in a country without czars and pogroms, where we were free to peacefully vote out rulers we didn't like, they didn't get on their knees in gratitude for being born British. This was a land of plenty, where a small china pot of fish paste with a dodgy illustration was a trifle, not a luxury. This was a land where, despite his inauspicious arrival, despite the hardships, despite even the latent anti-Semitism of the British establishment, he and Shandle prospered albeit modestly. By the end of 1943, the German occupation had completely wiped out Odessa's Jewish ghetto. It wasn't simply a massacre. It was, as their conquerors planned, intended to leave no evidence that an entire community ever existed. But a questionable job offer, as unwitting scab labour, ensured Avrom and Shandl's safety. And, by extension, it ensured mine. He was a stranger, and you took him in. That was A Stranger, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you like this podcast, then please subscribe on Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time.